every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, you'll be listening to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name's John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. Yeah, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there. But are they wicked good like this one? Let's ask this guy. Monkey. Seems pretty sure the answer is no. And with that, I would like to bring on our convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you? You know, in these busy days, I don't want to tie up too much of your time by talking about our fit. No, come on, please. What else are you going to do? Come on, join the Facebook page. You know, we have over 800 guys on there now. We have group watches, videos. Uh, for we're going to we're going to have a couple of videos on there this week about what we're going to be talking about coming up, and just guys talking old school wrestling. What what's, what more could you possibly want, John? I couldn't tell you. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff on the Facebook page. I I try to put up uh, old school results every single day. Yep. Now that we're talking about social media, feel free to feel follow me on Twitter. I uh, just put in the name John McAdam. Follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I don't stick to. Has wrestling. the uh, group watch been decided yet, John? I have not decided a group watch. Thank you for asking. But yeah, we have a group watch in the uh, in the Facebook group every week where we put on classic wrestling from WWE Network or wherever else. And we sit there and chat about it and share observations. So there you go. If you follow me on Twitter, usually I'm talking wrestling. Uh, I had a video today that I shared where uh, Terry Funk in 1989 said that Ric Flair looked like Phyllis Diller in drag. Uh, but I also talked about the 1975 World Series. So there we are. And with that, we have I, I, we have a guest that I've wanted to have on for a long time. And I just never like got around to asking him. I asked Brian last, like two, three months ago, hey, can I have this gentleman on? And he's like, of course. Mr. Christian Body. Christian, how are you? Like everybody else, what to do, surviving and thriving. As um, That's the way it is in the world these days. If you can get up and draw a breath, feel happy. I hope everyone's doing well and good to be uh, introduced to the rest of the brotherhood and that we all know and love. And in some cases, no one, lo- no one loathe, but hey, we're all in this <laughs> together right now. How are you doing, Johnny? I'm, I'm doing good. Listen, in case this is, we're, we're in like May 2020. If someone is like listening to this 10, 15, 20 years down the road, We've got this crazy virus thing that's killing everybody, and we're all locked indoors. We've got like 80,000 Americans dead from this. So that's what we're talking about, in case you don't know. But right now, I'm doing this, hopefully, to get people's mind off of that and give them something to do and put a smile on their face, hopefully. The subject for this week's Stick to Wrestling is an interesting one. It was Christian's idea, and I thank you for it. Let's discuss our favorite individual episodes of pro wrestling. Not like, not. Oh, I loved Mid-South, but like I loved Mid-South from this particular show. Christian, what's your favorite episode of, of Pro John, Wrestling can ever? I jump, um, can I put one more proviso that you put into this question to us? Which totally, was, it cannot, be a, it cannot be a special show. So it just, it can't be like a Clash of the Champions or something. It has to be like a single show of the whatever. Yeah, mine wouldn't be a Clash of the Champions anyway. Mine but either. thank you for throwing that in. Yeah, Christian. Because I, I don't even think the Clash of the Champions... I don't think the Clash of the Champions outside of the first one, and maybe the one with Flair and Steamboat were that great. I had two chosen, but I specifically went with one, or I could probably mention the other one in passing. It was the May 31st edition of the UWF, and the reason I say that is because it's probably as my favorite angle of all time, which is when the Russians laid the flag on Bill Watts. And okay, this is 86. It, 
Yeah, and pretty much the show starts out with, you know, Michael Hayes and Jim Ross talking, and the next thing you know, Eddie Gilbert's in the ring saying, I'd just like to talk to Bill Watts. And then his father comes out and says he doesn't want to talk to you, and then he's just, Eddie walks away dejectedly with the Russian flag in his hand, looking like, you know, he just got dumped by his girl. We get a couple of squash matches, and then we get the infamous moment where Dark Journey uh, comes to the ring, and Michael Hayes, she slaps Michael Hayes. And then all of a sudden, Eddie Gilbert comes back out and says, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to leave until Bill Watts comes out and speaks to me, and I, I think we need to discuss this like men. And then he comes out, and he says, I think we need to, to the to crowd in Tulsa, which was always lively, yes. we need to give this man a round of applause. And he's the point. He says, you know, Mr. Watts, I want you to know something. I'm an American, and I'm proud of it. And I associated myself with this flag for money, and that was wrong. And you've woken me up. For, as people don't remember, Eddie Gilbert Mann is probably the worst Russian in the history of this business. I mean, oh, yeah. if, not one, if he's not one, he's 1A. He's one. Korchenko. <laughs> he's one. He might be one A through D, but he um, who is now the was, big rig trucker guy. <laughs> and what, at the end of every one of his matches, he would lay the Russian flag on his opponent as basically an homage to the quote for by Nikita Khrushchev that we all heard that the, the Russia will bury you. And yes. Soon the, the the entire Western and European the, the Europe and the West will be buried under under a Russian flag. And so one week, Bill, about two weeks prior to this, Bill Watts had had enough. And Dr. Death, Steve Williams, comes to the ring and starts fighting him. And I think we all know Bill Watts' political leanings a little bit. He's like, yeah, he's hated Russia. He hates all of those Russians. All of a sudden, commercial break comes out. And before the commercial break, Watts says, I've had it. I'm not going to have this anymore. And goes to the ring and calls out Eddie Gilbert and says, we're not going to have any more you laying this flag on someone. And one of the funniest things I've ever seen was when Eddie Gilbert, who's about five foot two or five foot ten and Weighs about as much as, as Watts' calf. He says, you can't do that to me. And Bill Watts says, I can't do that to you. And he says, I can't do it. I mean, he was walking towards him like he was ready to whip his behind, like, like, a, like a mother, like a, like a parent to, to his child. Also, no hell breaks loose. Everybody comes in the ring, the Blade Runners, Dr. Death, and they break it up. Two, fast forward two weeks later, we get the infamous. Watts comes to the ring, and he says, you woken me up, Mr. Watts. I've associated myself with this for money, and I'm just... Sorry, and I'm sick that I did this. And I says, I want you to know you can take this leg and do whatever you want with it. He says, you're disassociating yourself with the Russians. He goes, yes, sir. And all of a sudden, in the aisle towards the ring, which adds to the brilliance of, of what Watts' psychology is, his tag team, the Blade Runners, and he says, no, boys, I'm just explaining to Mr. Watts, we don't associate ourselves with Russians anymore. And I just, thank you, Mr. Watts, you woke me up. And all of a sudden, his back is turned, and all of a sudden, who should run into the ring but Ivan, Nikita Koloff, and Korsia Korchenko. And they pound the hell out of Watts, and Gilbert does it too. And adding to the drama was Michael Hayes saying, oh, what a brilliant plan. And they're pummeling Watts senseless with the Russian chain, kicking him, and they're beat. they hit him with that little Russian shovel that he would bury people with. Watts gets some juice, and all of a sudden, Gilbert taunt, like, is teasing the crowd with the flag. like He's waving it like, yeah, you, you think I was giving this up? No, 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 no. All of a sudden, puts the flag on Watts. And again, if you listen to the angle, what adds to the drama of it is, you know, Michael Hayes, and I remember him saying the worst nightmare of his life he's living it and he's like and you and and watt stays on this flag for a solid minute <laughs> and and the, and the guys are trying to get to the ring dr death ted dibiase hacksaw duggan they're all trying to get to the ring and the blade runners are holding them up just beating the hell out of them in the aisle finally they all break through and they pull them up and everything else like that gilbert grabs the flag leaves with everyone and if you watch there's a wide shot from the camera where gilbert is walking out with the flag somebody in the crowd is trying to grab the flag and he jerks it back i mean this the crowd was, was in full throw ready to ride. And all of a sudden you see Watts bloody. He's getting up and he's looking, and his son comes out of the truck, which adds to the drama, Joel Watts. And he says, oh, man, 
Michael, he says, if I happened to me, I'd want my son to come out and see about me too. And they said, I mean, it was anybody who's seen this angle. If you don't think it was well done, I don't know what to tell you. But it was, it was an amazing angle. Next thing you know, Watts stumbles out of the ring, and they. And the one thing about UWF that was really brilliant was that the music segues they used to cut away. They used Sting's Russian mm-hmm. to show Watts getting pummeled, and you see like him stumbling out of the ring, and then all of a sudden Jim Ross comes back again after the commercial break and says. I want you to know that you're not dealing with a normal human being, that the man who did this to Bill Watts are going to pay for this and so on and so forth. Then they do a squash match with Dr. Death, and then the Freebirds come out and take on Ted DiBiase. It was Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts against Terry Taylor and, uh, and Ted DiBiase. Great match, spectacular match. And again, the thing about the UWF, that TV show had more stuff packed into 60 minutes. I will go to my grave saying from March of 86 to maybe February of 87, there, you might not find a better run of television in, in wrestling. I'll, I will fight anybody over that. You, <laughs> I don't think you can, I'm telling you I will, because every single week, when you were in squash matches, I mean, they didn't just have garbage, they had it for you. At the end of the show, Gilbert comes out, and he says, you know what? There are three things in life you don't do. You don't step on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wing, and you don't mess with Russians. And he's saying, I want to thank everybody here for falling for my trap. You suckers bought it, and all you idiots all over the world. I mean, Gilbert is underrated as a heel, because he, he's such a smarmy, tiny little shit. You just want to punch him. You know? <laughs> and he says, I want to introduce Ivan and Nikita Koloff. And all of a sudden, the Fantac- they were supposed to wrestle the Fantastics. And in typical UWF fashion, they're getting ready to go off the air, and the Fantastics are in the ring getting the shit beat out of them by the Russians. It's Korchenko and the Russians fighting them off, and all of a sudden, who should come out? Bill Watts bandaged up and bloody with a baseball bat. And he's swinging at everyone. <laughs> it's just like, and Jim Ross is screaming in a full pitch about, we'll see you next week on the UWF, and Watts is chasing Gilbert and people up the aisle. I mean, it's, to me, it's still holds up as one of the most entertaining hours I've seen and just in terms of just and the amazing thing about it is there was not a single title match in the show. That's the thing that kind of just always sticks to me that there was not one title match in that show and it still holds up when you watch it. And I, I'm, I'm almost certain everyone who, who was on our webpage on the Facebook page is going to agree about that. You know, I want to weigh in on a couple of things on this show and you're right, this was an absolutely great show. They did an angle and where Bill Watts gets laid out and they put the Russian flag on him in 2020. That does not seem very severe. I would think to nope. a lot of people, but in 1986 in mid South, I mean, he, I'll say it. He was symbolically raped by Eddie Gilbert and a Russian guy. It really was the worst thing they could have done for him. Paul Heyman has told me personally that he thought it was the best angle he'd ever seen. Um, and he tried to emulate it in ECW, which didn't go over too well. Um, let me see. The only good part about Korshia Korchenko was one week he's doing an interview with Eddie Gilbert. Korchenko didn't speak. And Eddie Gilbert's like, I'm teaching them all about how great America is. He loves, <laughs> the hamburger joint. He loves hot yeah, dogs yeah. now. He's like, I-, I bought him a sports car. And all he wants to do is chase around pretty American women. I mean, <laughs> he says... Hacksaw Duggan, we called you a chicken. He goes, chicken. It was just like, when you think about the Russians that were in wrestling at that time, you know, Nikita, Ivan, who were like dead serious, particularly Ivan, who could convey like just utter disgust for the United States and utter disgust for like anything American. To have that cartoon dope, who was about as graceful as as a pregnant camel, being pushed as like some monster heel. I know Watts, Watts can make, like Jim Cornette said, Watts can sell you the shirt off your own back, but I just, to me, it was just silly, but adding Ivan and Nikita, I think, added a sense of realism into it that was just yes. violent, that made you go, okay, this is serious. And then, you know, it, 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 again, listen, I would advise anyone who's listening to this, listen to Michael Hayes and Jim Ross during this. 
You know, when you see the crowds, like, um, I can't believe that Jim Ross could probably make a pie eating contest sound serious, but I mean, exciting, but he was the way he was screaming and the pitch in his voice. And then forget they brought out Frank Dusick, who was talking about, you know, what they did to Bill Watts. I don't think, he, you know, they'll, they'll never, you know, he'll never let this down. He'll never let them forget it. It was so dramatic and so well done. I mean, like you said, for kids that didn't understand what how Russian was done, there were just certain people, like, for example, nowadays, you did scan, they might understand Skandar Akbar more than Russia. You know what I mean? Because yeah. of tensions with the Middle East. He might be able to get over and get some heat, but people look at Russia now like, eh, whatever. You know, but back then, at that period of time, in order to get serious heat, Russians had it. I mean, and, I, and, and Nikita was probably, I, I, we've heard tell, Nikita tell stories about being chased on the interstate in North Carolina by people coming for him. So, yeah, <laughs> when you see that, and remember that, I mean, I, and the other episode I mentioned was probably a brief one. It was a Crockett episode. It was the, the last one, um, it was August 23rd of 86, which essentially was the best of seven between Nikita and Magnum. Yeah, there was a loaded show. That. It was taped out of Charlotte, opening match. I mean, Worldwide and Pro that week were about as good as you're going to see. Yeah, Dusty versus Flair on Pro, which led to the Baby Doll turn. And then on Worldwide, you had Rock and Roll versus Midnight. Midnight had won the title the night before in Philly, and I was there for that one. And then you had Nikita versus Magnum for the best of seven. I mean, and when the three count happens, when Nikita pins him, I mean, we all remember the chain being used and everything else. Yeah. It was pretty much when you hear the three count and you just, and you hear Magnum and T- Tony Schiavone and David Crockett, oh no, oh no, oh dear God, no, no. I mean, they're acting like someone died. <laughs> and the crowd ahead, went from going wild to going completely silent as soon as Tommy Young hit that three count. The play, I know. The, the stadium went silent. It was eerie. Sean, I got to get your thoughts on Christian's pick. You imagine how much Cy Sperling would have made in Russia, in Moscow, if you could have an absolute, <laughs> the hair's clubbing in guy. I mean, right. every guy. It's like there was, you know, even you know, the premier, the Russian athletes, them all. It's a, it's a perfect example of why his show was so good. Uh, there was, there's no wasted space. There's no, you know, even in this one, the, the weak spots of his normal show where he'll kind of go off on one of these flights of fancies and, you know, doing commentating about, you know, Kabi Bulas, the Welch or whatever. None of that's here. You know, he, he does this well. This is Bill's wheelhouse, this kind of thing. You know, it, it, performing in it and, you know, you know drawing it out. Uh, and Eddie, this is Eddie at the height of his powers. This is, this is Eddie as, you know, when I think of like Eddie at the absolute top of his game, it's pretty much right here. And I even like right. the music in the Russian because uh, Christian's right. The guy sucked. He's terrible. But, I mean, he, he makes him sound much better on the show, on the trucker show. But, <laughs> what ha- but you're right. It, it didn't take it seriously until you brought the other guys in. So right. that allows him, if you had like, if he had a legit posse, you're not getting this angle because he's not going to be able to fool Bill Watts. Now that he has this loser there, it's dead. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. Bill Watts will turn his back because he thinks there's nothing here and the Russians show up. And the thing with them made it even, I said the Blade Runner angle when they're just standing in the aisle and it, and it never appears to you that why are they there? And then they cut back and show all of them trying to get there and the Blade Runner's just holding them off. It was so over the top. It's like, Detailed. Bill just took care of every detail. It was almost like yeah. a like a great director that says, "I want this done." I mean, you've heard Cornette talk about men tape this, show some tape. Men coal miners glove, show the glove. Sounds dumb, but it's like, yeah, you need to mention that. And nowadays, these guys who can't cut promos without a script, it's like, you know, you sit down and watch some old style and learn and learn how to, um, you know, and learn how to do something like this. But I mean. To me, it was, when you say Eddie at the height of it, yeah, I mean, that whole summer, I mean, from the time, even though he lost his roster, he lost Rock, obviously went to, to became Dingo War, and lost Korchenko, 
within a week he became hotter again because people remember he had the, the match with Bill Watts where Sting went in there, got his ass kicked, and all of a sudden the Freebirds come in. The Freebirds and Gilbert bloody him up. So even though Gilbert got his ass kicked by Watts for five minutes and got whipped with the belt, you didn't remember that. All you remember him was like Watts laid out, Gilbert coming back next week with the belt laughing at him, and then two weeks later he's got Steiner, Sting, and he's hooked up with Missy, and then boom, Gilbert's got his heat back. Again, more, more brilliant. Yeah, let's talk about Eddie Gilbert. He was the booker here. Watts approved everything, but Eddie was the booker. Eddie once said that he got an offer from the WWF to bring in him, Missy, Sting, and Steiner all going to the WWF. And he goes to Watts, and he's like, look, I'd like you to let me out of our contracts you know, so we can go up there. And Bill says to him, well, yeah, I guess I can do that, Eddie, but uh, I was just about to make you booker. And Gilbert was like, that was the one thing he could say to me that could get me to stay. So alternate universe, watch just lets him go. And those guys all go up north and we see what happens. But I agree with you. Eddie Gilbert was a great heel. And the way he was used in the UWF in 1986 is the way he should have been used in the NWA in 1988 or and or 1989. Sean, your thoughts. This is such a Memphis angle. You can tell Eddie did it. This is this is such a Jerry Jarrett kind of you know angle, but this is again this is him at the absolute height of his powers. This is the Bobby Shane kind of you know persona, and you know what? It probably did him a favor not going up to WWF. They would have buried him. It was too early. Uh, if he maybe I would say mm, five, six, seven years later, maybe. Where do you think UWF, they would use him? The way UWF did, as as you know. This smart alecky kind of semi wrestler, semi manager guy. I mean, that's my guess. I don't have, I don't have, you know, straight information on that. But didn't Missy go there with Missy's Manor? And you can actually see some of these things on YouTube. Missy's Manor. I don't think Vince knew how to use talent that was kind of hardcore like Eddie, because there, Eddie's almost like someone that wants, like a like an artist that wants creative control. Like, okay, with Bill, he can say, Bill, we need to try this, and Bill can say, okay, or you know, Bill might, Bill obviously has final say, but. He's willing to give people leeway, like you know, you know, maybe a Duggan or maybe a DiBiase or this, that, and the other. What Vince says goes. Hence the Red Rooster with Terry Taylor. I th- honestly think Vince, the only person I that, I mean, Sting and Steiner would have been used right, particularly Sting. Sting had gone to the WWF like '88 or '89, or '87 to '80, whatever. He'd have been fine because he he kind of fit what they were, and even Steiner might have worked as well. But I, I don't think he would have known what to do with that. That's just my take. I don't think he would have known what to do with Eddie because Eddie is kind of was very headstrong. And when you're brought up in a certain mentality, like with, you know, in the South and in, in that in the territory area, having one guy be like the be all end all, this is what we're going to do. And this, this is the end. I don't know if Eddie would have gone for that. Cause I know Missy kind of was like, she's mentioned that the discipline there was kind of lacking at times in terms of direction. So particularly with female characters, again, I don't think I'm, you, you would know more about that than I would John, but I, I, I don't think Vince knew how to use people that he didn't create if he catch my drift. No, I and look do, at the I, roster. Look at the roster for 1986. How many? He at this point is just collecting talent and burying guys one after the other, including a bunch from mid south, which Bill probably was happy to bring up. Uh, they're not going to use him. You, your IC title is being competed between Randy Savage, <laughs> Ricky Steamboat. Where are you going to put him? No, I mean he would have gotten that kind of push. I mean, I think what what would have happened is Eddie would have been kind of the player coach with Missy. And Sting and Steiner would have been the tag team. But Christian, you brought up Missy went to the WWF in 87. She was supposed to debut Missy's Manor on television starting the week after WrestleMania 3. And they're on YouTube, and it's a bomb. I mean, Missy, (laughs) 
missing. She's help. not, you know, she's she's not David Letterman or Johnny Carson. She's not someone who she doesn't know how to not make it about herself. And I'm not saying that in, in a bad way. So, you know, their idea is dead, and then they decided that they were going to make her a – first they wanted to make her a valet, and Eddie said no way on that one, and he was right. And then they were going to make her a federette, if you guys remember those those girls. But she was going to be a special federette. Eddie once again is like, Missy, you're not doing that, and that was kind of the end of that relationship. One last thing about this show, I mean, I remember Michael Hayes getting slapped by Dark Journey. He comes to the ring talking to her. And he's trying to pick her up, and she's, like, not accepting his advances. And Hayes just looks at her, he goes, hey, I got a late old lady at home. I just want to know if you want to walk down Bad Street. And then she slaps him. I'm like, man, this guy's got some nerve. Sean, let's talk about your favorite episode, your favorite television episode of all time. Anyone who's heard this show for an extended period of time knows exactly what I'm going to say. March 8th, 1986, WMC Studios, Memphis, Tennessee. This is the perfect show. The backstory, a quick backstory on this was that Jerry was kind of burning out in 1985, from what I understand, and he lost a lose the leave town match to Dundee. So uh, he's now, I, I guess he's taking bookings in Hawaii or something like that. He just needs to get away. Well, the t- attendance went down again, as usually happens when Jerry leaves. But while the attendance was down, the Bill and Buddy show starts. And Bill is on the greatest heel run of his career. I actually was watching it again. It reminded me a little of the dynamic with, not in the ring, but the personalities of Barnes and Dundee early in their career. That, except in this case, Bill was way angrier. Yeah. I mean, he is palpably, he absolutely brilliant here. He is such a hateful little bastard. It's, and I'm brilliant. And this is some of Landell's best work. The problem is, looking back on it, is they had no one to push back. They got so great, there was no baby face to go. They needed Lawler. So what do you do? How do you bring him back? Well, this episode answers that question. And this question never gets answered satisfactorily, except this time. So this is one of those episodes that they did where they would have the, and it's good every once in a while, if done well, and they did it well. Actually, Watts does it well, too, which is have the one angle kind of weave its way into the whole show. So Jeff Jarrett starts out. He's a referee. And fresh out of high school. Yep, fresh out of high school. And, and they keep made in mind sure that we knew that. Oh, and, and, but that was part of the beauty of the angle is that yes. everybody knew that anyway, because Memphis is a small town and people know who the Jarrett's were. So I mean, all this stuff is background information that they already knew, including one of Jerry's injuries that was brought up later on. So Dundee comes out and Landell, and it's just they're getting worse and worse each week. Lance is appalled. Lance can't stand the side of him at this point. Lance That's how you got part of this. He would just sit there with his jaw dropped, like looking like he couldn't believe what was going on. I mean, Lance was really set. Lance is great here. He is selling this well. That's how you got the famous Bill and Buddy show because they walked out because yeah. Lance would, wouldn't work with them. So he walked out. So they end up with their own studio, the Bill and Buddy show. It was this brilliant Memphis heel where it's it's scary and funny at the same time. Like Jimmy Hart describing um, Ricky Gibson's breaking his fingers so he can't do sign language to his parents, that kind of thing. It's like, what? Who thinks of that? But, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that he was doing, just over the top. So they come in, and they're just they're beating the crap out of everybody. And then they start working over Jeff. Again, right out of high school, and he looks like he's right out of high school. Mm-hmm. So Jerry comes out, and they work his eye because they knew the other eye. He, he had an eye injury. So uh, is it totally blind, John? 
in one eye? No, he was not totally blind, but they they went after his good eye. And Lance made sure we knew about that. But this is something that people would have known anyway. Because this is, again, part of that Memphis kind of culture. So the whole thing like gets out of hand. Finally, Dutch, who had been on, they brought in a little bit early on where Dutch is like, okay, I think they're Dutch was part of the trio, but they were kind of talking down to Dutch the whole time. And finally, Dutch caught him. Yeah, on so this Dutch episode, is, Dutch decided he had enough of Bill and Buddy, and he turned babyface. They were desperate for a babyface. So Dutch is sitting there playing the guitar to Eddie Marlin, and he's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with these two. I've had it. They've crossed the line. I don't mind playing dirty, but you know this is way past anything. So this stats happen, and they're beating up everybody. They beat up the Jarrett's, and finally Dutch comes out. Shampoo in the hair with the towel wrapped around them, no shoes on, comes flying out and they get chased off. So now all hell breaks loose even more than usual. And Eddie Marlin has the greatest moment of Eddie Marlin's career. Was Eddie Marlin ever cooler than this moment, John? When uh, he, he came up with this. He walks out and he says, you know what? I've had it. I know Lala lost. I know it's illegal. I don't care. I am pulling the suspension off Lawler. Lawler is so great. And I told John before the show, I was going to compare Lawler to Orson Welles. I'm about to do it. It's an old movie called The Third Man. And it was right after the war. And uh, it was about a smuggler in uh, Austria. Inside the point. What they did to introduce the character was they didn't show uh, the the character, Harry Lyme, played by Welles. But they kept talking about him for like the first half of the movie. And then finally he shows up. Years later, they're talking to Orson Welles about this great performance he had in The Third Man. He started laughing. He goes, I wasn't in most of the movie. It was just everyone talking about how great I was. Lawler pervades this show like that. Because it's just, he's not even there, but he's there. It reminded me of an ad I saw from Kentucky once. It showed the whole Memphis card. There was a picture of Lawler there. He wasn't on the card, but there was a picture of Lawler. So that just shows you the greatness of Lawler at this point. That even if he's not there, he's like a character in what's going on. Eddie comes out and he said, get the phone out here. I'm getting Lawler back. So Dutch is out there <laughs> with the stupid shampoo in his head. And I know John gets upset because Jerry started crying at one point. He kind of lost it. And he's like, well, that's too much. But that's what made it work. Because you watch, you're just like, okay, this, this is different. They're making you doubt what you're looking at. It's not the program as usual. Dutch coming out with the shampoo. The, they bring the phone out with the extra long cord. <laughs> you know, the old thing. Everything was made a little bit difficult to show they're struggling through this. Which made everyone at home go, who've been watching this product for so many years, go, hmm, is something really going wrong here? Did Dundee actually lose it? Because they know Dundee and Lawler have been rivals for years in real life. I mean, it's so it, it all made sense. So then finally, the whole thing built up, and even I applauded. Finally, they got Lawler on the phone, who's probably in the other room. They got Lawler on the phone, and you're like, yo, can you make it? He goes, I'm coming back. The place goes nuts. And that basically ended up setting up the last shutout, the last shutout, sellout in Mid-South for wrestling, right? The Texas death match for yeah. Dutch and Jerry against Dundee and uh, Landell. Again, it's the perfect show. Everyone's perfect. Dutch is great. Landell. Jerry's great. He's not even there. Lance is great. Everybody's great. Even Eddie's great. Yeah, they did the thing with the phone, the extra long phone cord. And Dutch, they couldn't get it all the way out. So Dutch is on his hands and knees. Oh, it's perfect. It was barefoot, dripping it, soap. Yeah. It looked totally unscripted. It looked like, yep. you know, they weren't planning to do this. And I don't even know if they did that on purpose or not. You know, that they could have been. Barely gone to Santa. Yeah. 
I mean, it was it was a tremendous episode. I agree it with made you. you suspend, it made you suspend disbelief just for one second. That's all they had to do. Yeah, I know. Christian, your thoughts it, on the show? I just watched it today because, as I said, I I had known a lot of my Memphis because, like, when I first started getting the Observer, you always see guys like asking for Memphis stuff. I met a guy from South Jersey that sent me a lot of Memphis. So after this, like in '87, when I started collecting tapes, I meant to go back to '86 because I heard like the first six months was wild. I think someone said the best six months he had seen on television was this, like up from like December of '85 to like April or May of '86. But watching that episode, it was so believable, especially when Jared starts crying about his son. And, I, and looking at Jeff, Jeff, Jared, I'm like, my God, he's so skinny back then. But that's when we started talking about Buddy Landell wasting town. Like, my God, he, he was just such a smarmy jerk. And even looking at the Fantastics in that episode on his side, I'm like, how soon before they ended up going to Watts? Because it, it was, I think it might have been their last show. But they also mentioned something that was kind of cool. Oh, there's cheerleaders here from, from the National Cheer Championship. They're making a lot of noise. <laughs> I was just like. You know, the screaming that you heard, it reminded me a lot of the TBS studio where you heard a lot of um, screaming and yelling, but the brawl between Dundee and Landell Jazz was great. I mean, th- them, calling him on, them calling him on the phone, he's like, you know, let me tell you something. I need to get back there and straighten this out. I mean, and then like, they have a promo, I think, where Dundee is cursing. I'm like, why? They, they were editing out hell. Like, I, they sent me to Louisiana for a fucking year. What kind of shithole was that? <laughs> just like, you're that mad about it? But he's just like, but it was, it was believable. Like you said, it was believable. I, it, I think everything that came from that area that was from like the territories in the South was believable. And that came across to me like when Lance Russell's walking him off. I mean, I think that's another thing that's another lost art is announcers being involved in angles. Whether it's like, you know, when Brady Dog got hit with the tennis rock and David Crocker was so disgusted, he handed the mic to Cornet, here, you talk. I don't want to talk to you. Or like, <laughs> you know, people screaming and things like that. That I mean, when you have an announcer showing disgust, that adds to it. And with Lance Russell showing empathy and the other announcer was like, you know, yeah, this is terrible. And this, oh, my God, what are they doing to his eye? He's got one eye. You can hear him screaming this. Like, that's not the good eye, is it? And you're just watching this going, whoa. And that's when you hear the screaming and everything else. Like you said, John, they know the intimacies of these people. And they know the injuries because they've seen them for 10, 12 years. And, and that's Lance kind of a like lost, a conductor. Yeah. It's like it's, it's a lost art that's missing. And I don't know if you can get it back. But it's like when you hear a lot of us say the old days, like, you don't see stuff like, you don't hear crowds. When we were doing the group watch a few weeks ago, when I said about Greensboro, listen to that pop. You'll hear that no place. Yep. You know, when you hear the screaming, you don't hear that anymore. It's like, I'm thinking of the day because I was driving to Philadelphia a couple weeks ago, going past the old Civic Center, hearing how the crowd sounded there. It's, it, you, when you can make people emote and feel things, it's great. And that's, I don't even think television does that anymore. And you were talking about that on the, on the Facebook page, John. We're watching stuff with no crowds. And we're not getting anything. Even as bad and lame as WWE crowds are now, at least you get something. That show, I mean, I'm not going to try to watch more Memphis when I have some free time in between Zoom calls at work because that, that run looks great. I mean, again, the show's once again when they said, don't ever give Jerry Jarrett a tarot pool, he'll kill you. Because the fact that Jerry could do that with that limited group of people, you know, it almost makes you wish he'd have gotten a run in something really, really big because he, could, he probably could have done some great things. So, no, and, and that's kind of, and that's really. I mean, Jim Cornette always says that don't give Jerry Jarrett um, a talent pool because he'll kill you. I mean, and I need to look through some of my old Memphis stuff, like from '87, because even then, when they just brought in uh, Tommy Rich, and um, the fact that they made Tommy Rich a heel, unbelievable. I think about that. Like I always thought Tommy Rich was this dopey guy, but then when he went there in '87, he became amazing. And then when Gilbert comes back and he's running Jerry Lola over with a car, who does that? Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm like vehicular manslaughter on television. I mean, I think what was it in the Observer? They voted. Memphis Wrestling, because it was live, the best show um, of that year, because you, they said you turn in, you're never going to know what the hell you're going to see. Like when I think 
they someone dunked pig droppings on someone on that show once. I, I remember reading that thinking, who thought that was a good idea to put that on television? But that's what they did, and, and it works. The, the drama works in the way, like they, Jim Cornette says again, are they smart to the business or are they smart to my business? They're not smart to how I do things. And I think we were fortunate enough to watch good stuff from other around the country, depending on where you live. You know, I, me being in New York, obviously I'm at home where Titan and, and WWF is, but I saw enough around the country where I wasn't, you know, traumatizing it with Vince's shit that I could actually see a good angle and know what it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think on that show, it was on the same show, if I recall correctly, that Dutch Mantel was turned babyface. They had a, a match in the Mid-South Coliseum the Monday before. They showed highlights of it where Buddy accidentally knocked Mantel down or, you know, clocked him. And Dutch wants an explanation. And Buddy's like begging, like, no, Dutch, please. You know, I'm sorry it was an accident. And then Dutch would turn his back and Buddy would like act like he was going to hit Dutch or, you know. It, it's really great. It's something you should check out on YouTube. And then they get to the studio. It's just Bill and Buddy. And Buddy is talking, you know, about what a redneck Dutch is and we should get rid of him. And then Dutch shows up. Hey, guys, where were you? You were supposed to pick me up. I, I You were supposed to give me a ride. <laughs> I, think we've seen that, I think we've seen that done in other promotions, but it's almost like the fake fight, like fake throwing punches. It's, it's weird what you can do when you have some imagination. And again, sometimes like they say, being devoid of talent forced you to be creative, whereas Vince could do stuff that would just bore the hell out of you. Watts, Jarrett, and other people with limited talent pools could create exciting television. It's amazing that Vince had all that talent and was roster for years. Nobody goes to a superstars of wrestling and wrestling challenges. Wow, that was a great show. The only ones I can remember are like the one where Steamboat gets his throat crushed, and that's basically it. I can't remember a single syndicated WWF program other than maybe the one where you see uh, Bobby Heenan showing Flair's belt, and that was at the end of it. It wasn't even like they built anything towards that. But Jarrett was so good at just creating tension. I mean, the one thing I've never liked about certain things that's done is heat between heel factions, which is like what was the staple of Watts. To me, it doesn't work. I just, I'm, that's just my opinion. I know Ken Mansell did that a lot. Because it made no sense to me. My brain was like, well, wait a minute. They're in the same locker room. I mean, and, and when you talk about detail, it's funny you shouldn't say that. Remember the Midnight Express telling you an What was the first thing he said? Yeah, well, it violates locker room politics. The first thing he's planting the seed. Yeah, this might divide the locker room. You understand what I'm saying? Who else would have thought to say that other than someone trained by Watts and Jarrett who understood that? And then, yeah, we don't want to really, we don't really care, but, you know, we want what we want. And it's like, whereas if you go to UWF, you got the Devastation Incorporated feuding with the Free Bros. I'm like, wait a minute, aren't they in the same locker room? How are Skandar Akbar sharing a locker room with Terry Gordy and, and Michael Hayes? When they're I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it because it was like, it was almost like when you used to see the locker room all the time, like when Dusty would run angles where they'd go in the babyface locker room and beat up Ricky Morton, or they'd go in there and do this, that, or the other. Like when, like the, another angle with the locker room, when Ole Anderson you know, goes in the back and says to Ric Flair, I've already spoken to these three guys. I want to know one thing. Where the hell do you stand? And he goes, you just don't get it, do you? And they beat his ass in the locker room, and they throw him in the toilet and say, you made your decision. Live with it. And I was just <laughs> like, I always remember him like lying in like a toilet. He's just lying there and goes, oh. Oh, I'm beat up. <laughs> like, I'm just like, yeah, where is Ole getting dressed? He can't go and hang out in the, in the locker room with Dusty. He can't go hang out in the floor. Where is he getting dressed? I mean, that's just me. <laughs> I thought about that a lot, but I mean, I just think heel versus heel, it can be done a little bit, but not, you know, how many successful ones feuds can you name where heel versus heel? I mean, other than Midnight Express and Sully and Arn, and we only got that for like 30 days before it was done, but that was the only real one I go, yeah, that worked. And it made sense. And it forced you to choose sides. And we got some brilliance out of it. 
I fantasy booked an angle where a heel got kicked out of the dressing room and he was getting changed in and out of his car. But anyway, I just wanted to like say how this all began. Like they had Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell show up doing an interview. Five minutes later, Dutch shows up. He's like, hey, where were you guys? And, you know, Buddy's been running Dutch down and Lance rats Buddy Landell out. He's like, oh, Dutch, I can't let you sit here. And this guy's been running you down or whatever he said. But like, but like Lance dropped the dime on him. And ultimately, <laughs> Buddy Landell, you know, gets into it with Dutch and Bill Dundee sides with Buddy Landell. I mean, if I recall correctly, that was all in the same show. And that was a great show. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I always took the Dutch thing differently. I always kind of felt like Dutch knew. He's just like, I finally caught you. I mean, he didn't yeah. say that. He played along, but he was mm-hmm. like, okay, I got you this time, you little weasels. Because they, were talking, <laughs> they had the Dutch had the great promo where he's talking about, you know, they don't like the country and western bars I go to. Yep. And they don't like, listen, you know, they don't chew tobacco. So, you know, what am I supposed to do with them? It was great. Everyone was perfect. I, I think I know what the next group watch is going to be, but my favorite is going to surprise a lot of people. Mine is the Monday Night Raw from April 21st, 1997. And I'll give you a little background on this. They just did the double turn at WrestleMania 13 like four weeks ago where somehow Brett comes out of this as a heel, which was shocking at the time. And Steve Austin is the babyface, And Brett comes out after that WrestleMania and reforms the Hart Foundation with Owen Hart and British Bulldog. And by the way, for a wrestler, Bret Hart was an incredible actor. He had a couple of like memorable moments during this time. But anyways, they open up the show with Steve Austin's music player and him coming to the ring. He's the hottest thing WWF has had since Hulk Hogan, maybe even hotter. And that's just the truth. Vince is technically still a babyface, and Austin starts bullying him. It looks unplanned, unscripted, and he challenges Bret to a street fight, and Bret gets on the Titantron and accepts. So anyway. They go to another segment where Vader is legitimately still detained in Kuwait. He's been there almost two weeks now, and they're making fun of the poor guy. They have Austin and Hart in a street fight early in the show. Bret Hart, Bulldog, and Owen all attack Austin at once. Shawn Michaels comes out with a chair and runs Bulldog and Owen off. So now it's just Bret is stuck by himself with Steve Austin, and the majority of this match is Austin destroying Bret Hart's knee with a chair. And Brett legitimately needed to take time off, by the way, to get knee surgery and wrist surgery. So Dog and Owen have to carry him to the back, and Austin gets evicted from the building by Gorilla Monsoon. Now, by this point, I knew exactly what that meant. We've had all this go on, and we're at the midpoint of this show right now. They had Tiger Ali Singh debut, and somehow they had high hopes for him. But anyway, we see Brett wheeled into an ambulance. And they close the doors, and Steve Austin is waiting in the driver's seat, and he gets up and starts pounding Bret Hart. It was like something that had never been done in wrestling before. It was shocking. It was funny. It was great. They finally get Austin away from him, and Owen and Bulldog see this, and they do something that you're not supposed to do in wrestling. Owen Hart just, like, looks very serious, and he goes, we're going to find him, and we're going to kill him. Like, you don't say kill in wrestling, (laughs) but they did it. And I remember at the time I was shocked. I'm like, whoa, they just broke a big time rule. They go to the main event, which is Undertaker versus Hunter Hearst Helmsley. They ran an angle the night before on pay-per-view where Undertaker burned the face of Paul Bearer. So mankind in the middle of this ring 
comes to the ring with a blowtorch and a plan to exact some revenge on The Undertaker. That is freaking hardcore for 1997, a blowtorch. And while this is going on, we don't have enough craziness. Goldust and Marlena jumped the rail to attack Helmsley and, and China. It was nuts. So finally, Austin comes to the ring to do his interview. And this is the end of the show. We know what's coming. Bulldog and Owen run in. They go after Austin. And Shawn Michaels runs them off with a chair. So we already had this crazy fire hose raw where something crazy is going on every second. And Austin's recovering. And they're wrapping up the show. And all of a sudden, Brian Pillman, who has not been seen in six months, jumps the rail and attacks Austin. Like, we've already had the craziest Raw ever, and that happens. And I got a kick out of this for the third time this night. Shawn Michaels comes in with a chair and runs people off. That was my absolute favorite episode of Raw, favorite episode of anything ever. And I know they broke a lot of rules, but it was enjoyable while I was watching the show. I thought it was great. I'm trying to process Shawn Michaels defending Bret Hart, knowing what would transpire months later. Oh, he was <laughs> I mean, defends all. I mean, it's, it's an odd situation to, to be in, but it's. I mean, there was so much going on in the WWF at that point. They were trying to combat WCW, but I mean, you were going back and forth between both shows to see what was on. I remember that show vividly, especially when Austin was in the car. I was thinking, how many angles with cars have we seen over the years? And that's just, you know, that was just one of them. But I mean, Raw would become even crazier in the months ahead. I'm kind of not really surprised you picked that one, but it's still a good one to remember. Raw had good moments, and that was one of them, because I do remember that, especially when Owen Hart could convey a lot of things. But when he said, we're going to kill him, I remember thinking, whoa. <laughs> I, I'm, you brought it up, and I'm glad you, you reminded me. Of, like The way he looked in the camera, it was like, we're going to find him, and we're going to kill him. And like you just, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> Owen conveyed what he, what he felt. You know, I mean, it's almost like they crammed so much into that show. Like, you could have had that beatdown the next week, but these were desperate times for the WWF. They were fighting to survive. WCW was beating them in the ratings. WCW was now being seen as the major league wrestling promotion. And there were legitimate concerns that, look, either the WWF could go under or would get bought out or, you know, best case scenario, they might have to bring in an outside investor. Uh, Sean, what do you think of that Raw? Or have you seen it at all? Oh, absolutely. I do remember this. I went away from wrestling for a long time. I kind of went back to ECW as my kind of revolt in the uh, early mid-90s. And part of the reason I went back to WWF was to follow Steve. This is one of the few great characters that Vince didn't really create. He had nothing to do with. Basically, Steve took it out of the hands of the judges. He made somebody so compelling that you could not avoid him. This started in ECW in 95 when he just got cut in uh, WCW. and Paul called him up. He goes, Steve, what do you want me to do? He goes, just say whatever you want to say. And that was the start. Steve showed up and he just goes off on everybody. He's like yelling about Bischoff and everybody. And that started this whole anti-everything, crazy, wild man. And then he picked up some elements from the Sandman and other things like the beer drinking coming. And all of a sudden, this guy who was just – the chaos worked because of that character. Because the whole show revolved around Steve, much like I was saying how they would kind of weave angles into the whole show. Well, they were doing that. And Steve had such you could tell Steve was like, finally, I'm getting my shots after all these stupid years. And he just had that almost crazy energy at this point. He had a feeling kind of like Dusty Rhodes in 73, early 74, where it was just 
absolutely inevitable that he had to turn face. You could call him a heel. Of, it doesn't. He was too cool. Fans were not going to boo this guy for that long. It was like Ric Flair in certain spots in his career that you would have or to do something Warriors. extraordinary. Well, the roadway. They were just so cool that it didn't, you know, that was steep. So, yeah, I came back at this point. I was watching because I just, this character was just so different from anything that had come before. I mean, it was just, I, I'm sitting there, I'm like, there's no way they let him do it. They tried not to do it, too. They gave him this other character with Ted DiBiase and the million dollar belt. And then, nope, out comes Superstar Steve from ECW. And yeah, and it started from, and it just kept get building and building. And it almost felt like Vince was losing control of it at this point. Christian, go ahead. You were going to say something. I was going to say, you were going back to your point about the WF going under. I don't think for younger fans and who don't remember back to like 96, 97, that was actually a real possibility. And it was like, what could they potentially do? I mean, I know they probably went crazy with doing things like that, but it was a real possibility that WWF was, which had been on top really since what, 84, 85, was not looked at as not just relevant, not, not just as a power, but cool. And they needed something that was cool. Steve Austin gave him a little bit of an edge. I mean, because turning Hogan, I think, kind of gave WCW the difference. They came back with guys like Austin, things like that. But that's sure I remember. Like when I said, when Owen Hart said that, I mean, it was that was, to me was a paradigm shift because it, it, it almost felt like Vince said the spigot went off. Because, you know, along comes DX, along comes different things later. But that to me was kind of like, okay, we might have to up the ante from our television perspective to, to try to compete with what, what we're dealing with. I mean, Raw, it was, it was kind of weird that DVRs didn't exist back then. So you kind of had to choose. You could have it on, if you had two TVs, you could have it on in one room. At that point, I was living in Jersey City, so I remember we would have Ron in one room, and my, other, my roommate would have WCW on in the other. So we'd go back and forth and say, what's going on? And we would give it to the play-by-plays and things like that, or you would just tape one and watch it later on. But that was a, a member one. I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised you chose that, but it, it, it was a great show. And, mm-hmm. and it kind of, I think, relaunched the product for them, so to speak, because it gave yeah. If you give, I think Vince, when he's backed into a corner, says, okay, I need to do, I, I'm going to do something. But I mean, that really allowed him to do something, I think, great, or, or what became great. I mean, he eventually, we all know what came after that and everything else, Brett screwing Brett and everything else. We don't need to rehash that. But Raw at that point was, was I think, founded Sea Legs, and then, it, you know, the rest of this day is history. Yeah, I want to say something about Steve Austin, too. I mean, I watched him when he first started in World Class, like 89, 90, and I was like, they've got something here. And I was a big WCW slash NWA fan. And I'm like, you know, I was saying, look, Steve Austin might not be ready, but you better get him before Vince gets him because this guy's going to be something else. Then he goes to WCW eventually, and he did some really good things there, especially when they had the Hollywood Blondes. But by the time he left, I was like, oh, man, I was wrong about this guy. He does not have the it factor. And I'm kind of ashamed of that because I know enough about the wrestling business where guys are very political in the wrestling business and they know don't let the wrong guy get over and that's what happened to steve austin in wcw and i should have seen it and i didn't and as soon as i saw him in ecw i said to myself you idiot you you didn't see what happened to him you should have and ecw he was great and then as you said he went to the wwf got stuck with that lame you know Ted DiBiase's new protege gimmick, which I, at the time, I was like, no, this has, no. it sounded good. And then when I saw it, I'm like, this is not good. And then they just let it be Austin. And, and why did the Hollywood Blondes work? The Hollywood Blondes work because it wasn't their idea. It was basically a Steve and Brian operation. So yeah. once you gave Steve the creative freedom, 
you get the fabulous Hollywood blondes. Whenever you gave him the freedom to let him do what he does, he's brilliant. He only fails when you put him in a box. Get Steve out of a box. That goes back to our point about the initial part of the conversation, Eddie Gilbert and creative control, where it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you have to look at a guy and think, it's almost like the old story about JYD and Bill Watts when he said, find out what he can do. And then, you know, we all know the story about Ernie Ladd running and ragging. He says, you're fired. He says, I told you what he can't do. You didn't tell me what he can't. Guys can look at someone and say, this guy can do this. It's almost like a team where we got to, okay, so he doesn't play man-to-man well, but he can play his own good where we can use him. He doesn't stop the run, we can rush the pass, and we'll, we'll find a way to use him. If you give someone a roster, and you have to be able to find ways to use guys. I think Vince kind of ran into a rut when he just had so many guys didn't know what to do with him. If you give him a finished product, he can do something with it. But in the wrestling business, we've, we've seen historically where guys just don't fit someplace else, don't fit, go someplace else and do well. And they're like, oh, why didn't I see that? Or, you know, what, for like, for example, when you look at someone like, I didn't think Rick Steiner was good, but when he, when like the varsity club gimmick worked for him, you know, mm-hmm. and when they, and also Mike Rotunda, who although was good, when they gave him the varsity club gimmick was actually kind of smart. Erwin R. Scheister to me was like, you know, really, really then that's the best you can do. I <laughs> just was like, I mean, or even with Ted DiBiase when he became the million dollar man, Ted was a great heel, but giving him that gimmick was like, it, it added another layer to him that I didn't think was possible just being you know, a, a dashly person. This was this was like someone who thought, you know what, I'm just going to use all my money to buy what I want. And I said, that to me was brilliant too. When you, you see something, you go, okay, that works. And I think that's a, another lost art is trying to, you know, give guys second chances or give them second lives that actually can work as opposed to just sticking with a lame gimmick and saying, well, that didn't work. Let's just cut this guy or, or just get rid of him. So well, that could be a, a three-hour podcast in and of itself of guys who didn't make it and were given another chance and then did. And the next thing you know, we're all sitting there saying, yep, well, we're, we're all stupid for not judging this guy properly. You know, I have a question for you, Christian, but before I do, someone in the wrestling business swore up and down to me that if they had used this guy right, he would have been a huge superstar, and that's Duke the Dumpster Drosy. The guy was in the WWF, and he knew him, and he's like, this guy is loaded with personality, he's funny, and they give him this stupid gimmick that's never going to work, but anyway... I want to know, Christian, when did you start watching wrestling, and mm-hmm. did you ever have a lapse in watching it? Because I know Sean has. I know I had a lapse. Really, I started like 81, because I had, the weird thing is, I said, I'm born in New York, but I've, my roots and my family are like in the South. We'd go out there and see Georgia. My first card was at the Omni, so it was Georgia Championship at the Omni. So really like 82 is when I started watching. Then when my family moved to New Jersey from New York, you know, you got cable. And the weird thing is that I always tell people that, the cable television industry, we all know it saved wrestling, but in terms of me, it saved me because I'm, I'm the only probably New York person who looks at the WWF with just utter, like, it wasn't my favorite. It was something I could watch, but I would just, you know, look at it. I mean, the, the territory style of world-class, Mid-South, Crockett, that was with my roots, and that's what I grew to love. So, I mean, a lapse in wrestling, I have to be honest with you, probably around, like, 93. And when I was in college, I mean, my freshman year was, like, 91. After Flair got screwed over, WCW went to WWF. I remember watching up until like WrestleMania 8. And then like around late 92, like after I think uh, Bill Watts became the booker, and right around the time Smoky Mountain started, I kind of stopped watching from like 90, like late 92, almost like, you know, middle of 95. I mean, I could, I could I put on a tape and watch some old stuff? Yes. But as far as like following it and like actually having some, you know, real interest, no. But I just started back up again when like someone told me Bash of the Beach was happening and something was going down with Hogan. And I said, you need, said, you need to watch this. So I watched it, and that's when it kind of brought me in again. Like, Hogan turning heel kind of brought me back to, like, when something happens that shocks you that you don't see coming, 
that <laughs> that kind of made me go, okay, this might be worth checking out. So I, I started watching again, reconnecting with the mothership, as they say, and, and looking at it, because it, th- that completely floored me that night when, you know, Hogan stood in the ring. That might have been the best promo I ever, ever saw him cut, because he was like, I built that company. He goes, and Gene's like, what do you have to say to all these kids out here? And we all stick it. And I was like, whoa, the say your prayers, eat your vitamins guy is, is really a dick. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, they're really doing this. And I just said, okay, that, this is, this is going to be okay. But like a lot of other things, they kind of, they, they never let the heels get their comeuppance. And I think that's always the issue when you let, when, when we say creative control, you got to have creative control, but there needs to be someone in there that can kind of put their foot down. And ultimately with the NWO, the foot was never put down, I think firmly enough. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, that, yeah, that company, I mean, even when they were riding high, I mean, you could tell there, a lot of it was completely out of control. I need to know about this Omni card. When was it? August of 82. I remember I remember Road Warrior Animals on it. I, I know Ronnie Garvin and the spoiler were on it. It was funny because we were talking, a friend and I were on a Zoom chat with someone the other day. We we're thinking great arenas that no longer exist. And the first one that popped in my mind is the Omni because I had seen so many, you know, cards there as going down to visit family. And it was August of 82. I just remember it was, you know, smoky and it was that. I, I know... I know the spoilers on the card, and I can't. I know who else was in it. Dusty Rhodes was there. That's the first time I remember seeing, you know, Dusty in person, and you know the hold he had on the crowd. And I was like, whoa. Dusty's always said, "There's people that you have to see live to appreciate." Dusty, to me, has always been one of those. I know we can bash Dusty all we want. I know we both have, but when you see him work a crowd, it's almost like a great singer or a great entertainer. You know, when we talk about that with the passing of Little Richard recently, it was the same type of thing. It was like stage presence, how you do things like Little Richard could hook a crowd and things like that. That's what Dusty could do. Like when Dusty would flex the elbow and just, you know, kind of do his chicken walk around the ring and the crowd just went nuts. And I thought, yeah, Dusty, he could talk you into a building and once you had you there, he had you hooked. And I think that's, um, you know, even the times I've seen him live post that, you know, I've, I've again, I've bashed him, but there was a portion of the crowd that he could do no wrong to. And sometimes you got to give credit where credit is due. No, I, I definitely give Dusty a lot of credit. I mean, Dusty and Hogan are like the two ultimate guys that I have like, you know, a lot of conflicting opinions on. You know, yeah, they were great at a lot of things, but I mean, they they sucked at a lot of things, too. I mean, there was a time when Dusty Rhodes was probably my favorite wrestler. And then there was a time where he might have been my most hated wrestler. And Hogan was a guy that I liked in the WWF, never hated him. But when he was in WCW, man, I couldn't stand that guy. And we're talking Hogan as a baby face, like, you know, him just being so selfish. Ugh. To me, the WF to me was like, like I said, it's like bad boy versus death row or whatever. To me, it's like, if you like WWF, you were like, you like ice cream bars and foam fingers. I was like, nah, man, I need something real. <laughs> you know, yeah. I need something that spoke to me. And like all the kids would say your prayers and eat. I'm like, dude, I, it's funny because I watched WrestleMania three. Like we were talking about watching it last night. And it made me think, you know, it's funny because looking, looking at Hogan then, it was like, you know, great. That's the match he's most known for, and it's, it's like a terrible match. Whereas if you said, name me a flair match, again, we could go on for hours with Hogan. I'm like, I can think of maybe three to five good ones to great ones I've seen him in. And maybe, I, I could probably stretch it to ten with matches with Bockwinkle and a couple with Flair and obviously some with Savage. But to me, his, for someone who's gotten a lot of credit in the business, you know, his list of great matches is minimal. And with Dusty, it's like he had a shelf life. And, you know, I'm pretty sure we all, you know, I'm not going to pull a Melter and say he was grandstanding a lot, but, you know, Dusty needs to know when to step off the stage. And he didn't. And one of the funniest segments I can remember is when the Road Warriors attacked him and you could hear the crowd cheering. And the funny thing is when they replayed it a week later, they overdubbed it to hit so you could hear booze. I was like, that's, that's, 
I mean, if you if you actually ever get a copy of the TBS show where it's done live, you know, November of '88, when they stick the spike in his eye, listen to the crowd saying, "You hear stick the pig in the background," and they're cheering, and then like a week later, it's dubbed over. You hear like canned booze, and I'm just like, that is. <laughs> it was pretty weird that they actually did that, but it, you know, Dusty, I guess, had to be John Wayne to everybody, but to a lot of us, it was dust. You know, sit down. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's over, and you need to know that. You know, it's funny you brought up the angle. I mean, it, Dusty had the pole position to remain as Booker of the NWA until he pulled that stunt, and it was almost like, you know, no, you can't tell me what to do. And it's like, yeah, Dusty, you're you're out as Booker, and a month later, he was out of the company. But anyway, this hour always flies by. We have reached the finish line. Christian, thank you for coming on, man. You're a great guest. This is a good hour. John, as I said to you when you texted me, I'm honored that you asked me. Sean, thank you for the introduction to that episode. I, I will do some more digging as I'm stuck here in the bunker doing the Lord's work. But um, God bless to both of you. Stay safe. We will cross paths on the, um, on the Sunday night group chat um, prior to the, the last two episodes of The Last Dance. And you both of you stay safe and blessings to you and your family and everyone you know. Okay. That goes right back to you, Christian. Thank you very much. I want to thank Sean Goodwin, our convivial co-host, for everything he does for this show. And I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for making this sound decent. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Everyone be safe.